You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host Dan the Viking. Now before we go any further, I want to say hello to Sam, my new Patreon member. Thank you very, very much for joining us over there. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you are well aware we have had a bit of a delay for the last couple of weeks without any episodes. So I'm hoping you're not all getting withdrawal symptoms. Uh, Unfortunately, um, I have been on holiday so uh, I've been away uh, from work, been away from my recording equipment, spending time with the family. So I'm sure you all understand that uh, this uh, life of a podcaster does have quite a lot outside of it. Unfortunately, that does mean that you guys do suffer and there is no episodes for a couple of weeks. But we will be back on track now. And I am aiming to get a couple of episodes out just to make up for this. Now this week, guys, we are talking about one of the most famous battles in history. Okay, it's the most one of the most famous battles in history, but it's one you've probably never heard of. And the reason for that is, I don't know, to be honest. It's one that, um, you know, it's sort of been lost throughout time. And I think mainly because it's, uh, it's, it was take, took place in 1683. And for those of you who do know your history, you will know the Battle of Vienna or the Siege of Vienna, depending on how you want to take it. So before we talk about the battle itself, we need to establish the reasons why it happened. Now, Mohammed IV, who was the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire in 1683, was very ambitious. Uh, as many Ottoman emperors were throughout the time, um, they had the ambition of bringing Islam to the West. Um, so the point of it is basically, it's, it, this was almost like a holy war. Now, Muhammad IV had come across Europe quite quite a lot. He'd taken control of places like Hungary, the Balkans, um, a lot of Eastern Europe was already under his control. Turkey was also there. He he take or Constantinople fell a few years before that. Um, so this empire was expanding, okay, and they had their sights set on Europe. 
And the gateway into Europe at the time was through Vienna. Now, Vienna was the main city that stood in their way. If Vienna fell, pretty much all of Europe and all of the Christian lands would have fallen suit pretty quickly. Now, what you've got to remember at this time in Europe, you've gone through the Catholic Reformation. You have a series of individual states in Europe that are fighting against each other as well. Europe is not united. Okay, you have a lot of countries that are following the Roman Catholic side, basically modern-day Catholicism, and a lot of Europe that was split to this new Protestant ideology. Um, and this would what we call the Roman Empire, or the uh, Catholic Empire, and the Holy Roman Empire. So the Holy Roman Empire, very confusing, is not to be confused with the Roman Empire, that is from Rome. This is the Holy Roman Empire, which was Germany, Poland, uh, and those collective states there. So this is where you had the battles. You had Henry VIII uh, in the 1500s. Um, then you had England pretty much becoming a Protestant country. After that, apart from the little blip we had with Mary I, but after that, um, Britain was very, very Protestant. Uh, you had, obviously, Ireland being Catholic. There was conflict there. France was Catholic, there was conflict there, Spain was slowly becoming Islamic, there was conflict there, um, you know, Europe was at war with itself, so this was a perfect opportunity for Mohammed IV to basically to take over, yeah, if, if he could establish one religion in all of Europe, Europe would be united, it'd all be united under an Islamic front, and that was the plan. Now, the only city, like we said, that stood in his way, I mean, obviously there were other cities that stood in his way, but the main one they had to get through first was Vienna. The leader of this great army was to be a man named Kara Mustafa. And when he looked out in front of his army, he was pretty impressed. Let's say, um, you know, I think I would have been as well to be ahead of this sort of army. There were 300,000 men ready to fight now these are trained warriors these were some of the best soldiers in the world um, the tartar cavalry was one of the best cavalries in the world uh, the janissaries which is one of the best fighting uh, units in the world at the time this was pretty conclusive that 300,000 men was going to take the tiny city well it's the small city of Vienna. I say tiny in the sense that compared to three hundred thousand people, it was it was quite small. Um, plus, you've got to remember, as this great army is approaching Vienna, a lot of people are getting scared. Um, a lot of stories are coming out where they're burning houses and villages to the ground before they get there. Um, they're slaughtering Christians when they see them. People are scared in Vienna. You know, although the city had some fantastic defenses, it had an outer wall um, in sort of like a star shape. The points came out, um, the the outer wall. Then it had a um, a big trench in between. Then another wall, um, which again came out in sort of like a jagged shape. It was very very well fortified. It was very very well defended. They had around three hundred cannons in the city of Vienna, ready to defend. 
Um, whereas this army could actually only bring 150 cannons with them. So although they had 300,000 men, they didn't have very much artillery. And this was because dragging artillery thousands of miles is, is obviously not very easy, um, especially when you're doing it with horses. So they they were in a situation where, although Vienna was very well defended, it didn't have the manpower to defend it. They had around 30,000 troops. The majority of these were actually stationed too far outside of the city to actually help. Um, actual defenders of the city, they had around 2,000, maybe 3,000 men. That's it. Um, they were really, really outnumbered. They almost had no chance. And this caused people to flee. In fact, the general of um, the army couldn't be counted on because he was part of the main force that was outside and Leopold the emperor of Vienna decided to leave now when the royal family leaves you pretty much you're in you're in a problem the people can see the royal family leave the people can see there's issues and the people start to panic a lot of high nobility also left Vienna at this time and you would assume by saying this that the, the emperor fleeing was was a bad thing. Uh, it turns out that he was actually trying to save the Habsburg dynasty. Now, the Habsburgs, which I'm sure many of you have seen pictures of with their long protruding chins, they were all inbred. Um, you know, the whole family was, was interbreeding, very much like Game of Thrones, you know. <laughs> um, so they, they do have very weird sort of looks about them. If you actually Google the Habsburg family, they, they are very strange to look at. But they, at this particular time in history, were not as powerful as they, they were before. Um, the, the family couldn't really rely on the French king. They couldn't really rely on, on pretty much, they couldn't rely on anyone. The main man in charge of the family was was Leopold, and he wasn't even a king, he was an emperor. So they were in a situation where you know him fleeing was more dynasty preservation rather than self preservation. Um still, uh it, it's a big shock to, to people to see the royal family leave. Um and obviously people then left with him. And the main advantage of this happening was that the people who left were not willing to fight. The people who were left in Vienna were the ones who wanted to fight for their country, wanted to fight for their empire, wanted to fight for their religion. So let's be, you know, let's be honest here. The, the main reason for this battle was, was a religious purpose. So a lot of people in Vienna were sort of like, no, this is, this is our religion. We are here to fight against the Muslims and this is what we will do we will stand here and we will die and fight um, to preserve Christianity the control of the city was left to General Star Hemsberg he was the one man in charge of saving Christianity that was his job with maybe 3,000 men and possibly around another 1,500 volunteers, so uh, farmers and local huntsmen, things like that, um, and peasants and things who could pick up a spear. Um, yeah, really not a good situation. 
But they did spend the next few days really fortifying Vienna's walls, adding more bricks, concrete, things like that, um, and making the walls just a little bit stronger than what they were beforehand, possibly a little bit bigger, um, possibly putting in sort of sharpshooter places where where sharpshooters could go, um, slightly higher platforms and things like that with a bit more protection. Um, But they didn't have very long. They only had a few days to do this. And when the Ottoman army arrived, or the Turkish army arrived, they surrounded Vienna very, very quickly, as I'm sure you can imagine. There was probably at this point around 250 to to 300,000 men. They had lost men on the way. Obviously, some died through disease, dysentery, um, and obviously some of them would have died in minor skirmishes. So they weren't at the full 300,000, but but pretty pretty close to it. Now, from there, they then decided to start sort of siege weapons and build higher platforms for their artillery to go onto just to give them a little bit more leverage and bombard the city. Well, like we said before, they didn't have as many artillery cannons as Vienna did to defend itself, but they did have quite a lot of ammunition with them, which obviously Vienna was in a situation where it couldn't bring any more in. So they had to be a little bit more sparing with their ammunition than the Ottomans did. The advantage Vienna had is the Ottomans didn't bring the heavy cannons. The cannons they bought were not very good, they weren't very powerful, and they didn't penetrate through the city walls. They were still a constant problem for the residents of Vienna, it was a loud bombardment constantly into the city. There are still cannonballs that go over the city walls, in which case if you are hit with a cannonball, you're not getting up. So they did take out a few men, um, a handful of wooden trebuchets, things like that they would have hit and broken. But in reality, the, their cannons were pretty useless other than just you know that that irritating mosquito that keeps biting at you that was their their cannon fodder the ottomans at the beginning actually struggled to get to vienna the city like i said was very well defended had a lot of cannons around the outside and a head on charge was suicide you know if you was to charge head on into these walls you weren't going to win so what the ottomans did was they dug trenches and they went straight along the in a straight line towards the city to hopefully give them a little bit of cover from cannon fire and this did work they got to the first city walls um, and hand-to-hand combat was inevitable a hand-to-hand combat in the in these times was not what we would have seen in previous wars or previous battles so this this hand-to-hand combat was very much close musket fire um, and a few swords and and spears but majority of it was very very close musket fire now if you for those of you who who know the american civil war it was very very similar battle style to that you know very close a lot of gunpowder a lot of smoke a lot of confusion um, and you don't really know who you're shooting and who you're attacking it was it was it was a bloodbath let's put it that way now the Ottomans actually managed to breach this, the first city wall at this point. Once they breached that city wall, they then realized the epic task they had in front of them. The first city walls of Vienna were huge. 
but they were not as big as the second ones. There was a massive trench between the two city walls, and the second ones, or the second walls, were a lot higher, a lot more fortified, and a lot thicker. They were a lot harder to get over, and the Ottomans have now realised that actually, yes, they've got over the first wall. Hundreds of them have died, possibly thousands, and they're not going to get over the second city walls. The only way they're going to get over these walls is to break them down. Their cannons aren't strong enough. Their cannons weren't strong enough to knock down the first walls. They're certainly not strong enough to knock down the second. And they're in two options. They can either stay there and starve them out, or they can try and breach the city walls in one way or another. So what they did was they dug underneath the city walls and planted mines or gunpowder barrels, things like that. Now, the Venetians knew this was happening, and they sent their own men underground to find the mines and to put them out. There was almost a mutual understanding between the two sides that if a tunneler was to meet an opponent from the other side, then they would just back out, basically. They weren't to to fight or to start skirmishes underground because they knew that realistically they would both die so there was sort of this mutual agreement and they did happen you know where people would tunnel under the venetians would tunnel the same way and they'd, they'd meet each other in the middle um, and instead of killing each other at that point they would just back out and start again uh, many times the venetians found these mines put them out and there was no explosions on a handful of occasions though these mines went off when the mines went off there were more combats on the surface they would breach the walls even in a slight small area if that main wall was breached then there would be extreme hand-to-hand combat going on there a lot of this would then be swords pikes bows and arrows because a lot of the men who were defending the inner city walls were not trained soldiers they were local people uh, local farmers and peasants who had just picked up a sword or a shield or, or whatever to try and fight back this ottoman invasion these were bloody skirmishes now the leader of the venetian army was in a situation where he could become very defensive or he could become offensive now you would think in a situation like this being offensive would probably not serve you very well but it did he decided to do nighttime raids out of the city walls and kill the ottomans while they were in this in in their tents or when they were asleep a lot of the ottomans were in trenches dug outside the city walls so he would send troops out maybe 100 at a time not not massive parties and just go and kill them while they're in their sleep um worked quite well until the ottomans realized it was happening and then they would have people awake and they would ambush the ambushers and it was a, a whole thing um he started to lose a lot of a lot of soldiers that way and then decided not to do that again so you're in a situation now where you're losing men you have lost men you may not have lost all of them but you have definitely lost men vienna was going to fall the men 
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Women, children, whoever was left in the city were dying. They were either dying of, um, you know, of the Ottoman swords, the Ottoman shot, or they were dying from malnourishment, starvation. A lot of people in, in Vienna were were starving to death. In fact, they'd actually started eating all the cats and they even ate the rats and the squirrels from the city. Now, for those of you who know your history, you will know that Vienna was one of the few cities in Europe that was not affected by the plague. And a lot of historians believe that because of the fact that they were eating all of the rats, possibly contributed towards that. Not possibly, I would say definitely contributed towards that. Vienna was not in a good situation. The Ottomans outside, however, were in a pretty pretty good place. You know, they defended quite well. They defended the attacks that were coming out. And their men were doing doing well, Let's as well as you can be during a siege. But the men of the Ottomans were well fed. They were well looked after. And they were in a much, well, they were just in a much better position. Now, what you do have to remember is that earlier in the episode, we told you that the Emperor of Vienna, Leopold, left Vienna. He was not idle when he left Vienna. He was looking for help. He went to France. He went to Louis XIV in France. And Louis XIV rejected his help. They said, no, we're not going to help you. We don't really like you. And we don't really care if you get invaded. The Germans, on the other hand, had a slightly different approach. They realised that although there was a bit of controversy between them and Vienna, they realised that allowing a huge Islamic army of 300,000 men into Europe would probably cause the fall of the entire European continent. Um, and therefore decided they would send certain legionaries to help. The main bulk of the resistance, however, came from the Polish. They came from King Sobieski. And he sent 30,000 Polish cavalry. Now, the interesting thing about this is the Polish cavalry at the time was possibly the best cavalry in the world. And we will talk a little bit about the Polish cavalry right now. The Polish cavalry, or more specifically, we're going to talk about the Polish hussars, or what we call the winged hussars. If you ever look at a picture of them, they are horsemen top to bottom in um, shining armour with a huge lance and two great wings out the back. They almost look like angels of death. They were potentially the greatest cavalry unit ever to grace the world. Now, the winged hussars were mainly Polish nobility. They were very 
well equipped they were uh, they came from quite a rich background a lot of them had a lot of money because when you joined the Polish Hussars or the winged Hussars you had to buy your own armor okay so the only thing that was provided by the state was your lance now the reason their lance was so effective is it was slightly longer than what a normal cavalry lance would be many nations were moving away from lances and cavalry due to the fact that european company uh, european countries sorry um employed pikemen okay for those of you who don't know pikemen are essentially foot soldiers with a very very long pole with a sharp pointy end on it these were devastating to cavalry charges cavalry charges going into pikes it, it was uh, inevitable there was going to be a lot of a lot of maimed horses a lot of men falling off the horses a lot of dead soldiers in the process and the cavalry couldn't actually get close enough to attack these pikemen meaning that cavalry charges were becoming less and less throughout the, the ages now the winged hussars employed a longer pike now this longer pike meant that they could get to the pikemen without well first essentially they their pike was longer than the pikemen's pike now that might not sound that interesting um, especially when you think with the size of these these lances they were very very hard to hold on to a normal cavalry pike was quite heavy the polish hussars was rather small or rather light sorry it was a long length but it was hollow and this is what made the the winged hussars so successful this hollow pike was very lightweight very durable and actually didn't shatter on impact so as i'm sure you can imagine on the back of a horse very very fast speed ramming a pike into somebody or into heavy plated armor the pike's going to shatter as soon as that shatters you will probably kill the man in front of you but that's probably it you're unlikely to be able to use that pike going forwards the winged hussars pike being a lot lighter being a lot more durable um, meant that they could carry on using their pike throughout the battle in fact there are stories that say as a cavalry charge from the winged hussars came down that they would spit they would spear up to 15 people with the same pike and when i mean spear them i mean these 15 people in a row would be pushed along the pike so when the pike was finished it impaled 15 people just gives you a little bit of an idea of how powerful this pike actually was now the winged hussars had very very good armor as well the armor like i said was privately paid for and it was extremely shiny now that sounds like a real pointless thing but shiny armor glistens in the sun it also looks a lot more intimidating when they're charging towards you and that was pretty much what they were going for they were going for a very very intimidating look with a very powerful lance to back it up if we then add in the fact they had these huge wings out the back that made them look like angels if you can imagine just for one second you're on a battlefield and somewhere between 10 and 15,000 
cavalrymen come charging down a hill at you. They're bright, shining armor. They've got lances bigger than anything you've ever seen in your life. They've got wings that make them look like angels. And they've got a reputation of being the fiercest and possibly the best cavalry unit in the entire world. It's going to make it a little bit shaky. And the winged hussars were formidable. Um, in fact, we don't know the exact number, but it is estimated that they won somewhere around 90% of every battle they fought. They were unreal how good they actually were. And a lot of it comes down to pure intimidation. The fact that when they arrived on a battlefield, the enemy lost heart because they knew how good these this cavalry unit was. And weirdly, this cavalry unit is completely lost in time. People don't talk about the winged hussars. They don't remember them. They were better than the Tartars. They were better than the European cavalry, the French cavalry, the British cavalry, they were the best cavalry unit in the world. And we don't talk about them. Now back to Vienna. We know a little bit about the Polish winged hussars. Well, back at the battlefield in Vienna, a notice has come through to the Ottoman army that a Christian army is slowly approaching Vienna. This army consisted of a few a few thousand, maybe 50, 60,000. These were the reports they were getting, um, meaning that the Ottomans still outnumbered the Christians. You know, it, it, they weren't too worried. And the, the fear or the, the thought process behind it was they needn't fear the Christian army if they can take Vienna. If they took Vienna they would be able to defend it. They had enough manpower, they had enough money, enough supplies. There was not going to be a problem with them holding Vienna. Okay, but on an open battle, it was probably a bit 50-50. Didn't really matter to them. As, the, as far as they could see it, the walls had been breached. There was only one wall left in Vienna that was not breached, or one, one surviving defensive wall. Um, and they were nearly through. You know, at this point, the... the, the garrison inside Vienna had lost there was no fight left in them they sent fireworks up every single night for months looking for this response from the Christian army every night these fireworks were sent up no response they never had a response they just assumed they'd been left to die basically they'd been left to rot and that was it that was the end of their, their chance. They'd fought off as well as they could. Um, and there was no hope left in the city. And the Ottomans knew this. If they could take the city whilst it was on its knees, they'd be able to hold it. So they weren't worried about the Christian army. Now, the Christian army had a specific plan. And that was to use Mount Kalen, which was the mountain just to the side of Vienna. Now with this they would send the Polish cavalry and the artillery up into the mountain to be able to fire down onto the Ottomans to give a little bit of support to the infantry that were to draw out the entire Ottoman army. Now that was the plan. The infantry would go in, draw the army out 
and the artillery would bombard them in the process. And on this particular night, the fireworks went up from Vienna and there was a response in Mount Kalem. And people in Vienna started to believe that God was on their side again. God had finally answered their call. So the day, the following day, the battle began. The Ottomans split their army into two, 100,000 to face the Christian army coming in, along with 60 artillery, and the rest were to attempt to take Vienna. The battle started, and the Polish artillery fired on the Ottoman artillery from a very high distance and managed to do some considerable damage. Whilst this was going on, both armies were in a considerable bloody field battle. The upper hand was still with the Ottomans. They had more men, um, and what they believed was the bolt or the, the only part of the army that they were facing was these foot soldiers from the Christian army. The Polish hussars sent out 100 cavalrymen down the hill, just 100, to test the strength of the Ottoman Empire, test the strength of their army, test their cavalry a little bit. They sent down 100 men, and these winged hussars killed hundreds of men. All 100 winged hussars in this instance died on the battlefield, but they took hundreds with them. Um, they were brutal. They fought until the last man. Um, and they really tested the Ottoman Empire. They really tested the Ottoman army. And there was only 100 that were sent down. Weirdly enough, these 100 men were enough to make the, po uh, make the Tartar cavalry think twice about entering the battle. In fact, they held back. A lot of them actually fled at the sight of just 100 horses coming down the hill. This gave King Sobieski an opportunity, an opportunity which lives in history. He sent somewhere between 15 and 20,000 Polish cavalry down the hill in what is known as the biggest cavalry charge in human history. And they wiped the floor with the Ottoman army. They absolutely destroyed them. And Vienna was saved on September the 11th, 1683. And it was all thanks to the Polish Hussars. And again, this is a cavalry unit that has been lost throughout time. It is a cavalry unit that we don't talk about. In fact, realistically, we don't talk very much about Polish history in general. Now, I'm sure they do in Poland, but the Western world, we tend to sort of shy away from that. There are some amazing things throughout history that are lost to time, and the Polish winged hussars and the siege of Vienna was one of them. In fact, this victory was so decisive that the Ottoman Empire never stepped foot in Vienna ever again. They'd been beaten. That was it. They gave up after that. So this story, which, you know, is 
is, is pretty much one of the greatest victories for European history. It's just forgotten about. You know, we don't talk about it. Uh, for those of you who have cottoned on to this from the last episode, um, for those of you who are heavy metal fans, I know one person on the group definitely is, because they mentioned uh, Sabaton before. Um, this is also another Sabaton song. Funnily enough, didn't actually realise this was a song until I started researching the Siege of Vienna and found that this was a song by them as well that I'd never actually heard. It's a fantastic song, by the way. It's called The Winged Hussars. Um, definitely worth a listen, especially if you are into your heavy metal. If you're not, then, like I said, give it a miss or listen to it on probably a lower temp- uh, a lower volume. But for those of you who are, give it a listen. Uh, it's a great song. It does give the story um, in, obviously, a lot less detail. And I do hope that you uh, you guys will remember this story, and especially those of you who listen who are Europeans, just remember that, you know, the Polish Hussars saved us, you know, 400 years ago. I know it's 400 years, but if it wasn't for them, I genuinely believe that uh, Islam and the Ottoman Empire would have spread throughout Europe. Um, you know, without that, that barrier... Without Vienna as a barrier between Europe as we know it and the Ottomans, it could be a very different history that we've got. And it's and it's all thanks to uh, this one battle in uh, 1683. So, yeah, remember that. And uh, thank you all for listening, guys. Uh, I do apologise again. It has been a few weeks. Um, we'll try and get some more episodes out for you. We do have... Uh, hopefully another episode of Bizarre Tales coming up for you in the next couple of days for those of you who are on Bizarre Tales we definitely have another episode of Absolute Poppycock coming out soon I know you guys who do listen to that and listen to this podcast as well do enjoy that so for those of you who don't know Absolute Poppycock is with me and Lee uh, Lee has been on this show before I have been on his show uh, well me and Lee co-host now Bizarre Tales um, Absolute Poppycock is another one of our shows. It's fantastic, very, very funny. Not history based at all. So if you are just looking for a laugh, then go over there. And we also have, it has gone live now, is Bedtime Stories with Dan the Viking, where I have a little bit of a softer voice and uh, we do some bedtime stories for you to hopefully send you off to sleep. So. Yeah, have a listen to some of those. Let me know what you guys think. I say it every week. Get yourselves onto Facebook. Get on there, facebook.com forward slash This Week in History podcast. You can just Google it as well. It comes up. Um, And we are on Patreon. So $5 a month. Like I said, thank you, Sam, for joining us recently. Um, And we'll give you a little shout out if anybody does join on Patreon. So thank you very much, guys. Thanks for listening. And we shall see you next week. Bye-bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.